This is episode 29 of the Immunology Podcast, Immuno-Oncology Therapeutics with Dr. Michael Alonzo. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raab. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, I have Dr. Michael Alonzo on the podcast to talk about developing immunotherapies that activate myeloid cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights immunology news coming up, but first... If you enjoy the interviews on this podcast, we invite you to read more interviews on the Stem Cell Technologies website. In the Immunology Profile series, immunologists tell their stories, discuss their research, and voice their thoughts and opinions on current topics in immunology. You can find these interviews at stemcell.com slash immunoprofiles. Hey, Brenda, how are you? Hey, Jason, doing great, doing great. How are you holding up in conference season? I know we just got done with Immunology 2022. It's nice to, to be uh, updated with AAI 2022, but I was also somewhere else. Uh, you know, in Europe, we also have some uh, immunology-related meetings, so I was actually also attending a cancer immunotherapy uh, conference last week. That, Pretty nice. That is awesome, and I think you're going to talk about that here in a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, I have some some highlights I just want to share with you. I'm no I know you'll be interested. Are they about enterocytes? No. No, um, sorry. That's okay. I'm getting my enterocyte fill at the end of the week cuz I'm going to DDW, which is Digestive Disease Week. Where I'll be sure to bring back some awesome mucosal immunology for all all our listeners. Can't wait. I'm looking forward. But well, but regarding AI AI 2022 meeting, so for all the listeners, remember we have 3 uh, interviews with uh, presenters at the conference uh, are three previous episodes. So if you want to go over those or you missed the meeting and want to get a sneak peek, uh, make sure to check them out, right? Absolutely. And we'll hope to see people next year in person at the meeting. Um, yes. Maybe even have one of those big microphones where we can record people from the floor on the hall. Wouldn't that be fun? Just walking around and asking people how they're doing and having a little conversation. We could expand out our favorite immune cell question. For sure. We should carry out a proper survey. Uh, so many plants. So many, Absolutely. So many get things. Absolutely. Get an IRB so approval, do. get some p-values in there, you know, really. Yes. Yes, that's, that makes it all publishable. Exactly. That's anyway. what you got to do, right? <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, talking about publishing, why don't we talk about what other people are publishing around the immunology uh, you know, research sphere? They have something... I to bring do. to the table today? I, I have a very interesting convergence of fields to get this one. It's called Fundamental immuno on, Immune on, Oncogenicity Trade-Offs to Find Driver Mutation Fitness. First author is David Hoyos. Last author is Benjamin D. Greenbaum. It's in Nature. It came out the 11th of May. So... This is a really interesting paper because it goes, okay, not proteins get mutated and those mutations then can lead to cancer. Okay. Some mutations though are so screwed up, they kill a cell. So we know that's bad. So there's this mutational fitness where you want the mutation to promote cancer, but not kill the cell. So that's mutational fitness, right? How good is it at making it cancerous, survive the environment, do all those things. But we also know that Mutated proteins are immunogenic, and that can cause your immune system to detect them and then kill them. So what they did is using the p53 gene as a kind of core principle. They modeled out 
using, you know, real world data from the cancer genome atlas and then patient samples and then a bunch of cell studies that I'll get to. They modeled out and demonstrated that, that, that there's a fit curve to us, right? That maybe sometimes you have a really mutated cancer that's probably better at being cancer, a better protein that's better at making cancer, but it's going to die from the immune system. And so it's not what you see in most cancers. So simultaneously, you could have something that really evades immune checkpoint, right? Like it, it doesn't prevent, cause an antigen presentation that drives a lot of immunogenicity. But if a mutation is crap, it's also not going to cause cancer. And so they develop a fit model that can predict and that, that, that combines these. And then they demonstrate the fit model does indeed show the patterns of mutation most likely seen in people. And so that looking at P53, right? So they use that as a mutation distribution in a model system. And then they kind of used a couple of classic, uh, or a couple of well-known mutations. Um, they found one mutation that wasn't super oncogenic, but it really evaded immune detection. And it was, you know, and they showed that if you took, you know, this protein and presented it to cells that you know, the, 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 you know, prime cells that the HLA presentation did not generate a strong response. And so they modeled that out in cell systems and similarly showed that also the cell, this mutation, for instance, wasn't that oncogenic. So they really modeled it step-by-step step, um, for looking at the ability of these MHCs to present things. Um, and then, so they made this fitness model. And then let me hop in here. They applied it to a couple other genes, KRAS and P10. Um, but they kind of paused there at one point and said, okay, cool. So we've shown this by principle. And then they showed they did what's called Pareto optimization, which is basically like at a certain point, further optimization on one curve doesn't get you anything. And the cost optimization is worse than the gain. So they, they showed that it falls under something what's called Pareto optimal. The other example though, they showed there's these other mutations. So for there are a couple of mutations, R175H is the most wild-like top wild-like hotspot, right? So it's pretty similar to wild-type in its function, but has terrible MHC binding capacity, which is why it's a hotspot. Alternatively, R248Q and R248W, mutations have complete, nearly completely loss of transcriptional function for P53. So they're really mutationed, right? They have a lot of cancer potential, but can generate neoantigens pretty well. And so the competitive proliferative advantage has to offset the immunogenicity. So they show these balances. And they show that the different, it's a different calculus, right? So you can't weigh things equally. You know, cancer potential, immunogenicity for KRAS, they do for P53. And they also show that it's cell type specific. So they show, I think that, uh, you know, that a lot of in vitro work, and then they hop in and look at patients and show that this comes up in patients with the same pattern. And I think they look in lung cancer cells and demonstrate that they're, in lung cancer cells, um, it's a little bit different balance, right? Depending on the type of cancer and how much immune cells they're exposed to at baseline, right? So a cancer tissue that is immune privileged can afford to have a more mutation, immunogenetic, immunogenistic or immunogenetic um, mutation in it because the cancer functions are out, drive it, and then it's escaped. So they, they kind of go through this whole thing and map it out. And it's a pretty neat model um, that they can do. 
I thought it was interesting it made nature because it kind of seems obvious, but then again, no one's ever actually demonstrated this pretty well, which is probably why I got there. But this trade-off was kind of intuitive, which I like. I like when my science makes sense to me when I think about it. Um, they also showed that immune selective pressures matters a lot less in non-cancerous lesions than in tumor. And so they're suggesting immunotherapy for prophylaxis may be important in some genetic conditions where you have a lot of mutations pop up. So if you can get rid of it, then you're not, and then you need to drive the immune system to find those early, right? Versus the cancer where the immunogenicity is really predictive. So basically it's telling that those potential mutations that would be immunogenic are selected out of cancers that you actually can see and measure. It depends. It's a, it's an advantage, right? So if you're really, really oncogenic, right? And you make yeah. a ton of growth, you may overwhelm the immune thing. And that was their example, right? You can have, mm -hmm. you can have a mutation that's almost wild type and it escapes the immune system, or you can have one that's just crazy. The immune system will fight, but it doesn't matter because you're already screwed. Right. Basically. And it also depends on the tissue type and how much immune cells the tissue is exposed to. I wonder, do they compare like cancers from people from, from different, like kind of backgrounds and they are presenting like they're characterized by different MHC molecules, for example, you know, Caucasians versus. Yeah, they did one of the more classic MHCs in here. I forget which one it was um, in, in their in vitro. Because HLA-A2, for example, is the, yeah. is very, yeah. very predominant in, in European, people of European descent, but it's not as common in, for example, people yeah, they use come from Asia. HLA-A2-1. Yeah, that's like most, yeah. the most common studied yeah they just in... wanted to go off the base system but yeah, yeah presumably if different hlis bind things differently you'll have different outcomes in different people which is kind of the mm. point okay yeah i guess what you say it makes it sounds it sounds yeah rational i i guess it there's doesn't feel like terribly um extraordinary conclusions but i think it's really nice to have it really looked at carefully and data to to really support this idea otherwise it's just well a feeling of what should make sense. Yep. All right. Well, I think it's your turn. Yeah. Um, so I want to start first. I want to talk about a paper uh, that I really want to discuss today. I have to say it's a little bit, it's been published already some weeks ago. So it's a little bit not so hot off the press as usually we have. But uh, I thought it was such an interesting publication and it had so much attention. So many people are kind of, discussing it that I thought I really wanted to get it, get in uh, that, that discussion as well. So I'm going to talk today about a paper called Reversal of the, of the T-cell Immune System Reveals the Molecular Basis for T-cell Lineage Fate Determination in the Thymus, published in Nature Immunology on the 29th of uh, April. Uh, it's from first author Miho uh, Shinsawa and from the lab of Alfred Singer at, the N at uh, NAH. Um, who has been working with uh, T-cell development for a while. And I thought it was super cool um, because basically what they did in this in the study is they generated a mouse, which they call the flip-flop mouse, in which uh, they, ex they replaced inside the, 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 the loci of the co-receptor CD4 and CD8, they replaced the actual gene being encoded, actual protein being encoded in each of these loci for each other. So they got mice that express the co-receptor CD4 um, 
under the influence of the kind of the uh, the locus of CD8, and they had a CD8 receptor that was uh, so I had a kind of a double gene uh, placed into uh, encoding for the two uh, subunits of the CD8 receptor encoded inside the CD4 locus. And they they looked at what happened, and I think the results were super interesting and really uh, made a lot of people kind of take pause and rethink or like kind of uh, think again what is our understanding of how T cell uh, in the thymus de development in the thymus happens. So I just want to say very quickly a couple of kind of uh, starters things that are kind of facts that we need to keep in mind to understand this paper. So within uh, the thymus and th thymic development of T cells, there's the stage in which they are expressing both CD4 and CD8 receptors. They're called it's the double positive stage. Uh, and in this stage, uh, T cells are also having a rearranged TCR and they are interacting with MHC molecules in the stroma of the thymus. And we know that from that, at some point, you end up having cells that have either a uh, CD4 receptor or a CD8. And cells that have a CD4 receptor are recognized um, antigens that are uh, presented on MHC2 and cells that have a CD8 receptor in MHC1 because that's, that's what the core receptors combine to. Between these two stages, we do also know that uh, at a first, in the first place, uh, T cells receive stimulation but with both receptors, and then they tend to downregulate the CD8 receptor. And then, and then, this, this, uh, then in some cases, CD4, CD4 cells just conserve the CD4 receptor and, and continue their CD4 journey. Or if the TCR signaling is interrupted uh, during the stage, then the CD8, uh, the CD4 gets downregulated and the CD8 comes back again on the surface and these cells become CD8 cells, MHC1 restricted. So uh, what the author said, showed is that um, if they do the opposite, if they have a CD4 molecule on a CD8 locus and the other way around, what they actually see is exactly the opposite. They see cells that first double positive get stimulus and then they downregulate CD4, the CD4 molecule, so that the protein gets downregulated. These cells are only expressed in CD8. And then they either keep the CD8 or they downregulate the CD8 and upregulate the CD4. And you end up having CD8 cells that have a CD4 locus being expressed and the other way around. And uh, this was very interesting. So what do we, so what is what's very interesting is that uh, when they count the numbers within the, the thymus development, they have roughly the same amount of, of cells that you would expect from wild-type mice from either of the, of the CD, CD4 or CD8 um, cells. But then in the periphery, they already saw that CD8 cells became a stark minority. They see, very interestingly, they see that the transcriptional factors that characterize CD4 cells and CD8, so usually... Uh, THPOC, uh, C40, and then uh, a transcription factor, and then CD40L, GATA3, these molecules are uh, related to CD4 identity. They are expressed in cells that are actually expressing a CD8 receptor. And the other way around, CD4 cells express RUNX3, perforant, YOMES, overall cytotoxic phenotype, and a transcriptome that is associated with cytotoxic uh, CD8 cells in normal wild type mice. Very, so what they see is that when it comes to so the signaling uh, that is mediated by these two receptors is very interesting because normally CD4 uh, cells, CD4 uh, receptor 
uh, is known for having a stronger stronger signaling. Um, and so it has always been this, this idea, so this was uh, for a long time, this idea that because the CD4 is a stronger receptor, this was the strength of this receptor that was kind of guiding the CD4 development in, in opposition to the CD8 development for cells that were MHC2 uh, pref preferential, so to say. But what they see is that when they express CD8, uh, so this is, a, I just need a moment because this is very, quite critical. They, they, in, when they have the mouse that has a transient CD8 expression, uh, and then which results in an acute decline of the CD4 protein, uh, this cells uh, result in a higher expression of a marker called CD5, which is related to kind of TCR signaling strength. But they also see that the um, the actual LCK and the actual amount of CDA proteins on the surface of these cells is lower. So they actually think that the signal is weaker. So CD5 expression, which was always kind of associated to the signaling strength, in this case, what they, what they suggest is that it's not about the strength of the signal, but about the amount of time that happens when the cells downregulate the other, the other locus, keep this locus, in this case, is the locus of CD4, but coding CD8. And they show, and so they really uh, show in a way that it's not about signaling strength, but it's about the signaling time. And it is the extension of the CD8 uh, signaling in this case, which is in normal mice is meant to be CD4 signaling and not the actual strength of the receptor that dictates the diversion of the cell to a CD4, uh, to a T helper uh, phenotype. Because you end up having CD8 cells that are helper cells. They're expressing a lot of the hallmarks of, of CD4 cells. Not only that, Within the CD8 positive cells, you have FOXP3 expressing T cells. They're not in, within the CD4 expressing cells, but within the CD8 compartment. And uh, very uh, interestingly, uh, these cells can, well, this is like to mediate in, in, in the cellular level, they can mediate, for example, graft rejection. So it suggests that this, in the cellular level, these cells can be cytotoxic, that they can act. But there are this CD8 helper cells are incapable of uh, mediating, for example, B cell responses. They cannot help B cells. So these mice with this mice with this uh, flip flop mice have deficient humoral responses. B cells that don't class switch or have affinity maturation, and and there's no germinal centers in this mice. Uh, they suggest that it's because as um, B cells cannot cross percent antigen through MHC1, which is what CD8 molecule can bind to, the helper, this, this kind of flip-flop helper cells cannot help B cells because they cannot interact with each other through MHC1 in the right way. Similarly, this mice cannot clear viral infection. And again, uh, what I thought was very interesting is that they show that uh, although CD8, uh, one of the problems is that because CD4 MHC2 restricted cells are cytotoxic in this flip-flop mice, they seem to be restricting or uh, reducing the, the immune response by actually killing antigen-presenting cells that are presenting the viral antigens to their MHC2, which in normal situations, it would be presenting to uh, 
helper cells and not cytotoxic cells. But in flip-flop mice, again, the roles are inverted. So I thought it was this is very cool paper. It took me a while to read it and kind of understand. Uh, it's very complex. But I think what the authors really, really thought is that this model helped to answer the question, what is driving T-cell differentiation, CD4 versus CD8? And they show that it's not about the receptor, receptor itself, but it's about the, the fact that one of the, lo the loci is, de is designed to keep expressing for longer. And that is what really is driving the length of the, the, of the stimulation for, for one of the loci is what's driving the, the differentiation in normal mice into CD4 cells that are helper. And then they're going to be expressing all these transcription factors related to helper cells and the other cells uh, go into the CD8 mm -hmm. kind of pathway. Right. So, so it sounds like the cell surface receptor is not the driver of differentiation. So even if you make that decision, yeah, it, it's the other, it's the other epigenetic changes in the loci that are earlier than that. And that, but the CD4 and CD8 functions and what they can bind to for all the good immuno, immunological glory we know about, those are really important for that. And if you swap the top without the bottom, you get nothing that works. Exactly. You have a mice that cannot really mediate a uh, response to any of the, uh, to the pathogens or the situations that they expose them to. So it does seem that a cell that in order to have a functional T cell compartment, you need helper cells that recognize antigen in MHC class two and not MHC class one. So you need to make sure those two things coincide. And on the opposite side, you need to have CD8 cells that are recognized in antigen in MHC1 that have a cytotoxic phenotype and not the other way around. So this is very critical. I know, again, sounds kind of obvious, but it's really nice to see it kind of really shown in this mouse and, and seen with so much detail. It's a very interesting read. No, that, that is very good. So, all right. I don't have a good segue here, uh, so I'll just guess I'll dive into it. It's a gut paper, though, so it's all good. It's actually an immunity, but it's about gut stuff. All right, so it's the gut microbiota prime systemic antiviral immunity via the C gas sting interferon one axis. Its first author is Saskia Ertman. Last author is Nelson O. Gekara. It's an immunity. It came out the 10th of May. And I thought this was really interesting. So long and short, type one interference protect against viruses, right? Yes, cool. Um, there's different pathways that can activate them. Uh, one is TLR. Uh, there's the RNA sensing pathway, and then there's the DNA sensing pathway of, you know, sea gas and sting. And it's been known that the microbiome needs to be present to have normal responses to viruses. So it's known that the microbiome, and this is also true in cancer, right? The microbiome is responsible for priming the immune system in such a way to maintain immune responses to bad things, such as viruses and also to cancer. And too much, but also the microbiome can be primed to decide to go destroy your own intestinal tract. So there's a balance. What they show, though, is that they, if, you, if you do antibiotic ablation and followed by HSV infection, herpes simplex virus, the microbiome is really important for resisting or herpes simplex virus infection. Cool. They show that. They establish that. And then 
they make and brenda as a postdoc i think you will really appreciate this they make uh i think seven or eight different knockout mice mighty 88 ticam one interferon beta with a luciferase trans uh they have a reporter luciferase uh, for interferon beta mave mvs knockout sting knockout interference so it's they made like three or four mice and then mated them all with each other to have knockouts of everything along the pathway of the different pathways so you can knock out the tlrs or the tlrs and sting or uh the rna scene sensing gene right they did it all oh my god those breeding schemes must be a nightmare although interestingly if they started breeding them whatever you got since they wanted all of the flavors of ice cream would be valid they just they just got all the litters. They just tested all the mice, they, and then they, whatever and then they, they had, they used. Basically, <laughs> yeah. kind of what like we're gonna breed them all together. But like, yeah, I would love to see the uh, yeah that breeding scheme. Yeah, and it's other ones for RNAs. Interesting, they're Rig One like receptors, RLRs. So, okay. holy God, they did they did this. All right. So seven years later, when they had their mice, no, just joking. Um, but they basically showed that if you knocked out Sting or sea gas, but sorry, my Sting, knocked out Sting, but none of the other ones, you lose the protection from HSV, from the microbiota. But TLR, Mighty 88, MAVS, don't matter, doesn't care, take M1. Only thing that matters was Sting. So it's saying it's a sea gas Sting pathway. So... Uh, wasn't related to endogenous retrovirus signaling, um, just sting. And it works without cellular back. So, but they're like, how does the bacteria from the gut affect systemic HSV infection? So they looked at this and inoculated E. coli in the blood or, you know, injected or the peritoneal, sorry injections of E. coli or E. coli lacking an LPS that stimulates TLR4 signaling. So there's this mutant that doesn't activate TLR. And show that, oh, that the mutant doesn't make mice nearly as sick. Um, but both the one that doesn't affect TLR, you know, where it's TLR signaling null and regular E. coli, both equally protected against HSV signaling. So something about the bacteria that doesn't involve cellular cellular contact is working so enter uh mvs which are uh membrane vesicles from bacteria or what's doing it and they show this uh they can purify them generate the effect they can uh, purify them from the weird e coli generate the same protection it's all sting mediated they did, you know, um, cell experiments where they had the bacteria up top in a chamber and then the cells in the bottom and show the effect works. So you don't have to have contact. They, I mean, they did all types of stuff. Um, so they showed there's DNA inside of it by just agarose gel. They show that if you pre-coat them, the MVs, with DNAs and then RNAs, right? You know, this, this pan-nuclease and then do the experiment, it still works because the lipid protects the DNA on the inside, right? So, no matter what you do, you have the effect. Um, and then they're like, you know, DNA bacteria can produce psychodinucleotides that may activate sting directly without C gas. They show that it's C gas dependent. 
they do that next, showing that you know if you don't knock out if you knock out sea gas, you lose the effect. Okay, so these vesicles are being released by this bacteria, they, and, and they transport right. into the circulation, where they prime the immune system to have upregulated sting and thus interfere on one signaling to protect you against viruses. And it works against RNA viruses too. So they say, well, it works against DNA viruses. It also primes you against RNA viruses because it generally increases your interferon one gamma tone, your interferon one tone, right? Yeah. And interferon one tone goes up, which means you have more viral immunity. It's pretty cool because I guess, you know, there's also lately a lot of research on sting activation in cancer as well that seems to be act activate the immune system and might be beneficial for for cancer responses and so i wonder yeah if this is a common theme that having this double stranded dna uh being somehow uh delivered there and keeping the keeping the interferon response active has a kind of protective role it's very interesting yeah super interesting okay. all right so you have like a whole like conference to present right now, right? Yeah, well, I'm not going to present the whole conference. There was a lot of very interesting talks. So again, the uh, Cancer Immunotherapy Conference, it was in Germany, in the heart of Europe. Very nice. I took the train. Um, beautiful weather. And I just thought, do something different today. I just want to very quickly tell you about three stories that I thought were really cool. I tried to give it short, but uh, inspiring and interesting. Um, and so I'm going to mention, uh, first of all, uh, Megan Berger was actually the first talk of the conference, was two and a half days. And uh, I thought it was really cool because she had, she's at Koch Institute at the MIT and she's opening her own lab very soon, uh, location unknown at the moment, undisclosed. Um, but she, she studied a model of lung adenocarcinoma in the mice. And that was already uh, at her lab was had been before by used before for other studies. But uh, this this lung uh, tumor uh, model has uh, basically mice that are KRAS and like uh, KRAS mutated, and they are also have P uh, flux P fifty three, and so by treating uh, mice with then uh, with viral with viral vectors that are expressing the Cre recombinase. You can induce lung adenocarcinoma within 16 weeks in this mice. Um, and this vector is interesting. It also contains two antigenic peptides included in the reading frame. So you have mice that have antigenically, kind of, of potently antigenic uh, tumor cells that you can test because they have a ova, uh, ovalvumin uh, for a peptide and also a synthetic peptide that is has also, also known to be very immunogenic. Um, so uh, what it was she she looked at this model because here you have two different antigens being presented at kind of roughly the same the same concentration they are being expressed by this vector at the same concentration but what's very interesting that is very quickly she realized that there one of the peptides uh, drives the dominant immune response so in this case is the ovalvumin if you put these two peptides basically mostly the ovalvumin generates T cells specific T cells and is the one that's driving the immune response and so, long story short, she shows that when you have this situation where you have multiple antigens being generated, that there is this 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 antigenic dominance that has to do often with uh, the fact that one of the uh, peptides is presented more efficiently 
and therefore it kind of dampens the response against the other peptide. But the bottom line of her, um, and sorry, and, and this sub subdominant uh, 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 antigen can actually drive suboptimal T cell responses, T cells that are characterized by the expression of CCR7 and TCF1. She names them TC17 because they also have some kind of um, TH, uh, um, kind of TH17 properties. Uh, but what she suggests is that this subdominant response can actually be activated and um, harnessed with a vaccination, a therapeutic vaccination. So in this mice, by adding therapeutic vaccination against this subdominant peptide, she can kind of bring back this response to bring it up to higher levels and uh, break this suboptimal response to the subdominant peptide. Uh, suggesting that if you have many peptide, many potential antigens, you can kind of help out the, the underdog by using therapeutic vaccination. Really interesting story. And um, and then there was another talk I really liked from Roby Meisner. He is assistant professor of pediatrics at Stanford University. And he works on immunotherapies for pediatric cancer, particularly CAR T cells. And he had a very cool talk in which he uh, went over the design of CAR of cars for for CAR T cell therapy, and the fact that we all of the cars that are used in clinics nowadays have basically the C three Zeta, um, so, uh, um, what's the word, uh, um, protein for signaling. So as part, which is part of the TCR uh, signaling complex. And uh, this, when these cars were designed, they were thought, well, you know, that's CD, uh, CD3 is what's around the, the TCR. So this must be, you know, the, the best way of imitating T cell, uh, TCR signaling. And he, he, what he does is he does a CRISPR uh, knockout of all of the different members of the TCR signaling complex uh, to identify which of those are really critical. And he shows that basically all of them, except for Finn, are critical for the for the TC, TCR signaling. And what he does is he then he takes all of these different proteins, all of these different domains, and he makes cars encoding like instead of CD3 Zeta, which is uh, what all the other cars have, they, he tries each of these different ones, and he finds that SAP70, which is one of the downstream kinases from the CD3, from the TCR CD3 uh, that is downstream from TCR CD3 actually gives the strongest signal upon stimulation of the car of the of the of the kind of um, and uh, peptide binding part of the car on the outside, and he compares it with like a classical 41BV CD3 Zeta car, and they show that they proliferate more. And I think what's very interesting, which is a huge I think a huge issue when it comes to car T cells, is that they have a lower baseline activation. So lower tonic signaling, and this really reduces uh, the the tendency of cars to kind of become exhausted and start presenting exhaustion markers. So he thinks that this could be a better replacement for our good old CD3 Zeta. And in a different design, he has he goes even further down the signaling pathway, and he focuses on two molecules. These are um, that are also downstream of sub seventy else uh, lat which is this, this large kind of, um, um, it's a molecule that acts kind of a, as, a, as, a, as an anchor for other uh, peptides or other proteins to bind to it and, and kinases. And then SLP76, which is a kinase that is part of this 
of this uh, signaling pathway? And actually, is there proximity that is one of the downstream events from TCR uh, signaling? So he suggests that you're going to have a heterologous car that has two different uh, um, antibody kind of binding uh, molecules. For example, again, CD19 and HER2, that's an example that he gives. And that when they bind to the, the molecules on the surface of cancer cells, they bring together these two elements, and that's what initiates the, 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 the signaling downstream and, and the activation of the cell. Really cool, because then it would allow you to be a bit more specific on which are the, the cells that you're targeting. I think it has a lot of, um, a lot of, it's a very interesting concept, so I really like his talk as well. So next generation CAR T cell design, really cool. And following on the topic of CARs, I what I thought was really cool and I uh and I thought was uh very interesting is you not know, cars in the real life car T cell therapy against solid tumors so far really disappointing results so there's this clinical trial from BioNTech in which they have a cloud in 6 specific car T cell cloud in 6 is expressed on not expressed on healthy adult tissue but very highly very commonly expressed on Prostate, uh, prostate cancer, uh, sorry, testicular cancer, ovarian, and other types of cancer. And so, what they did in this in this in this study is that they have the scars targeting Claudin, but on top of that, being BioNTech, they treat the patients with vaccine therapeutic vaccinations in the way in this in the in the form of mRNA of Claudin six in lipoprotein in, in liposome, so they can. Um, they can kind of keep the activation of the Claudin-6 CAR-Ts and, and that keeps the cells for longer active. And long story short, they have seen really, really interesting results. So they have had uh, response, response rates of 86% when it comes to kind of um, both, so the combination of partial responses and uh, stable disease on patients that were previously uh, progressing, which is one of the best results that we've seen so far for, for cars for solid tumors, and these are the, they are the first ones to do this double therapy, cars plus vaccination. And disclaimer: some of the patients were treated at my, uh, by my some of my colleagues, so that was, so was really nice to see the data. Uh, but this might be a new era on 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 car T cells for solid tumors. Oh, I was going to ask you if you could only list one favorite thing that go in one sentence or less, what it would be. But if you don't say what your coworkers did, you're going to be in trouble. So I won't ask that. <laughs> yeah, it was always so good. Everything was so nice. You know what I like? They have really good wine in that region of, of, of Germany. So it was really nice. Yeah. Riesling? Riesling, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Alonzo in just a moment. But before we get to that, Explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cells Technology Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com immunology research. Hi, everyone. Talking to us today is Dr. Michael Alonso. He is scientific co-founder and vice president of immunology and pharmacology at Bold Biotherapeutics, which is a company that develops cancer immunotherapeutics that activate myeloid cells. 
He is going to talk to us about his experience at the company and the science behind their products. Welcome to the Immunology Podcast, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I love what you guys are doing with the podcast and also a big fan of stem cell technology. I've been using the Rosette set for the better part of the last <clears throat> 15 years. So really nice to be here. Awesome. Thank you for coming. All right, Brenda, I'm going to dive in and start. Um, I think you have an interesting story, Michael. Maybe you could start there and that your grad school mentor is a co-founder of Bolt. And then you went off pretty early in your scientific career uh, to industry and biotech. And you've been at the same place for most of that career then. So what what has that been like? How did you, what did you learn in lab or discover as that grad student slash maybe some postdoc time? I know how it gets nebulous. And then you hopped over and now you're, you know, in, in a clinical stage biotech. Yeah, I'd say there was a lot of drinking through the fire hose, uh, which has been, you know, extremely gratifying and invigorating at the same time. Um, certainly from our studies in the lab, right, this started off with a 2015 Nature publication, where, you know, we have all these tumor models that are, you know, for the most part, you know, barren of T cells, but have all of these myeloid cells present. And the big trick is, you know, how do you turn this franchise around and start to kill the tumor versus letting the tumor grow as more of a wound healing response? And it actually turns out that the, you know, that it was rather simple how to turn it around. You have to add two ingredients, anti-tumor antibody and immune stimulant, right? And what does the anti-tumor antibody does or do? It essentially covers the tumor in eat me signals, right? And the FC is, it's just a jump, a bunch of eat me signals. And then your phagocytes are your your Pac-Men of the immune response can come in and they can phagocytose the tumor. And what happens when you phagocytose the tumor in the absence of immune stimulant? A little bit, not much, but if you add immune stimulant, now you've really got something to where you're upregulating co-stimulatory molecules and you're you know, chopping the tumor into itty bitty pieces such you're gonna present it on the surface of the, find the um, peptide MHC that activates the T cells, okay? And you know, with that fundamental finding, we thought we had the keys to the kingdom. I was like, this is it. This is how we're going to cure cancer, right? I mean, your typical grad student, early founder days, this is, this is it. Let's go, let's go. Um, so we went out there and we started, you know, looking for capital because, um, I mean, we had Ed Engelman as the head of the lab, right? This guy has founded Dendrion. He's a venture capitalist. Uh, so we went out and, you know, the team universally got the same response from the investors and the clinicians. This is going to be very challenging to deliver because you have to deliver intertumorally and it's multiple components, right? So anybody thinking about getting into drug discovery or drug development, you really have to understand the PKPD of what you're doing and how you're going to administer it clinically. And that turned out to be a big challenge for everybody. Nobody wanted to do intratumoral injections and they definitely didn't want to do intratumoral injections of a multi-component um, mixture, essentially. For the crowd who doesn't know what PKPD means, could you, can you explain that for, we, we know everyone on the podcast knows cytokine and binding, but PKPD may be newer for some people. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, PK is pharmacokinetics and PK is pharmacodynamics, right? So what does pharmacokinetics means? How long is your drug present in the circulation or in the tumor and pharmacodynamics, what is it doing? Uh, during the time that it's there, right? Is it fast acting? Is it long acting, et cetera? And in the case of, you know, our immune stimulant, what we used in the nature paper was interferon gamma or TNF alpha, which are cytokines, and then CD40 agonists, right? Which was either a ligand or an antibody 
then obviously the anti-tumor antibody. So each one of those components would have a different half-life, a different PK, PD profile. And if you want to treat, you know, patients, that just gets complicated fairly quickly. Um, so, you know, we struggled with that for a bit. And then we had our aha moment. It's like, aha, well, we'll just tie the two of these together or physically conjugate them and then be able to administer it systemically. And this is another thing to think about when you're thinking about drug development, like can you actually safely administer um, immune stimulants um, systemically via IP or IV administration, IP if we're in the preclinical models and IV if we're in the clinical models. And there was a lot of design process that went into thinking about how to actually administer an immune agonist systemically, right? So obviously if you're thinking about interferon gamma, it's very challenging to do because the surface receptor for interferon gamma is on the cell surface. So what we decided to do is we decided to utilize a TLR7 and TLR8 agonist, right? These receptors are located inside of cells in the phagal lysosomes, and more specifically, they're located in your myeloid antigen-presenting cells and your plasma cytoid antigen-presenting cells, not in the tumor or in many of these other healthy cells. Um, so with that, we felt that we could actually systemically uh, administer these agents, and we had a real focus on safety, right? Can we do it safely such that you can control the activation, not in the periphery, but in the tumor microenvironment? Um, and obviously a lot of went into that, and, and I'm trying not to get too long-winded um, in my answers, um, but once you design that process, our goal was not to break the immune stimulant. And what we found out, and I'll never forget this day, was Shelly Ackerman and I, because she was a very talented graduate student, um, in the lab who knew how to conjugate um, immune stimulants to antibodies. And we put our Isaac or immune stimulating antibody conjugate into the, you know, a, a co-culture of monocytes. You know, these are your precursor cells with CD20 expressing tumor cells. And we came back the next day and were shocked. We didn't find monocytes in the tissue culture dish. We found dendritic cells. And anybody who works with monocyte-derived dendritic cells knows that this takes three to five days to differentiate. We were seeing them in 18 hours. So right away, it's like, this is something different. And we definitely didn't break the immune stimulant. We made it better. Okay. And Jason, you know, with that finding, um, we characterized it and we said, okay, what's really going on is we found a more efficient way to deliver immune stimulant to dendritic cells, right? It's through the FC receptor with phagocytosis. And now you've concentrated that immune stimulant at the exact place where it needs to be, the phagolysosomes with your TLR containing component, uh, compartments. We're no longer relying on passive diffusion of your TLR agonist. Um, so it made a lot of sense. And with that, you know, we demonstrated preclinically that we could, you know, elicit complete tumor regression, et cetera. And we were off to, you know, raise our Series A funding and to start building the team. Yeah, on that note, so I see, so for example, or this immune stimulating antibody conjugates or ISACs, as uh, you call them, and your uh, some of them um, are, for example, targeted against HER2. I think it's your first product. And I have a question, maybe, maybe it's a little bit uh, naive, but you published this uh, information uh, in uh, Nature Cancer in 2020, but then the company was funded much earlier. So how did it work? You, I guess you already had, you were de developing the IP and you could have to wait, right? Until you could publish this. 
So maybe can you talk about the experience of this particular target and what the story of this target was? Yeah, I mean, the story of, of her too, right? Um, you know, her too is just one of those fantastic tumor antigens because it's expressed at very high levels uh, on several tumor types. And if you think about a phagocyte that eats based on the presence of eat me signals, if it's HER2, there's a whole lot of eat me signals on the surface of those cells. And it's been clinically you know, validated as you know, a, a very nice therapeutic in Herceptin, right? So we knew it was safe as an antibody. We knew it had low immunogenicity and it made sense of it as an Isaac. And you know, you're absolutely right. It, we spent you know, a lot of time sitting on a bunch of preclinical data um, because we weren't ready yet to release it to the world, um, which was appropriate as, you know, as a young startup um, who, you know, really feels that we're onto something that, you know, could be incredibly impactful. So we absolutely timed the publication, um, you know, as close to as possible with the initiation of the clinical trial um, while releasing a little bit of data through posters um, over time. But, you know, it certainly drove the investors nuts at times with how secret secretive we were. Um, but I think it worked out for the better with, you know, when we were able to release information. That seems to be very, very common. No? I think the very huge difference between you know, the industry and especially starting biotechs that really need to protect their IP. And that's basically all they have. And I have also, you know, we also talk to other people that have companies and this is can be really difficult because as an academic, you are very prone to sharing and to kind of showing the world what you're doing, but then you need to be very careful when you when this is not the basis of, of your company. Yeah, like 100%, Brent. I, I think the equation changes a little bit for academic or somebody in biotech when it moves from, you know, sharing the world with the technology versus trying to share um, with a product and yeah. to be able to take something from bench to bedside. Um, in all honesty, the publication was not high on our minds. And one more thing, um, you, so do you, this, is this company associated with your university? I see that your publications, for example, is still associated with Stanford. So my question is, how are, what is the role of universities in maybe uh, helping or incubating this type of companies? Was that the case for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Stanford is such a fantastic place um, for developing cutting edge technologies and then for you know, licensing that technology to biotech companies, um, particularly not just like large biotech, but they really try to, to license this technology to the founders um, if they are you know, interested in pursuing it. Um, so from Stanford's standpoint, absolutely, the technology was developed um, in Stanford labs, right, with Ed Engelman. Um, and then we filed the IP uh, and then started to you know, bring that technology out and Bolt Biotherapeutics licensed it. Now, in our case, it was actually very unique because Bolt maintained a very close collaboration with Stanford um, during the first year or two years of our existence um, because, as I mentioned, um, a graduate student, Shelly Ackerman, um, remained a graduate student at Stanford, and her thesis um, became these, these Bolt Body Isaacs. So we collaborated very closely with her and with a postdoc in the lab, Justin Kenkel, um, who was developing the technology for our TAM agonist, our tumor-associated macrophage, that Dectin-2 program. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of very close ties uh, with Stanford. 
So I've asked this next question of a couple other biotech guests that I wanted to ask you as well, because it's always good to hear multiple opinions. What do you think is the hardest phase shift from academia where, you know, hey, you, you found something, you're ready to cure cancer, and then biotech slash pharma, right? Every biotech, you know, we're, you're on the, the biotech path that morph differentiates into pharma over time, ideally, if you want to use that type of terminology. Where do you where do you think for people interested in that? What are the skills they need to get while in grad school or postdoc? Where is the big surprises you didn't see coming that you're like, oh man, in hindsight, man, I wish I'd known that, or that was a big phase shift. Yeah, honestly, there's many phase shifts um, that happen. Uh, we touched on one of them, right? PKPD relationships. Um, as a grad student, it's just not something that we were concerned with. Um, you dose your preclinical models until you see responses and you can just dose them much more frequently. Um, the biggest surprise that we had, and I still tell young founders or early founders this because it shocked me, um, we had raised our Series A round and had, you know, millions of dollars in the bank, right? I, I've never seen this many zeros in a bank account. And I remember trying to buy reagents and all of the vendors told us, no, we don't have sufficient credit um, to buy my rosette set from stem cell technologies or to buy antibody. And I'm like, this is crazy. Look at how many zeros are in our bank accounts. Um, but you have to establish credit as a company. Uh, and in the early days, we were absolutely, we were using our personal credit cards um, to buy pipettes and antibodies. Um, so, you know, that was a very early shocker uh, to me as an, as an early founder. Um, but, you know, a, a big, a second big phase shift from, from academia to industry is, is building the team, right? In academia, you come in, you've got a team of, of brilliant scientists who are well-published um, or, you know, young graduate students who are extremely eager. And now you're at a biotech company and it's, you know, it's a very small, close-knit uh, group and you've got to expand the team. And you have the choice, you know, do I bring in the best scientist? Do I bring in the best people? or a combination of the two. And you know, early on at Bolt, I found it extremely useful to, to bring in the best people um, or the best athletes, uh, as you will, somebody with diverse skill sets, because you are going to be wearing multiple hats and you are going to be in the trenches uh, with your colleagues and your teammates. So it's very important uh, to develop that camaraderie and you know, hire in people or bring in people to the team that want to be there, that share your drive and are ready for the ups and downs of startup life. And obviously, Jason, as you transition to bigger pharma, uh, that equation changes a bit. So having now established credit, you, you've gone <laughs> through uh, some series of funding. You have some you know, things in, in, in a phase one, two trial. You know, where you've you've done grad school postdoc where do you think your next step of growth challenge is besides get the drug all the way through like put that aside yeah that's of course every 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 company is going to do that but where where do you see the next step of your journey as a scientist slash now biotech entrepreneur head of a lot of science for a company yeah look look absolutely i i can't set that aside, right? I mean, the, the biggest personal goal that I have is to impact patient lives and ensure that, you know, we change them from patients to survivors, right? I'm very bullish that, you know, BDC 1001 can do that um, and that the platform will be extremely useful uh, for clinicians and for our, our, our patients. 
Um, my next steps professionally is, you know, to build out the pipeline um, to understand, you know, the technology as we knew it when we developed BDC 1001, the technology as we know it today, uh, and how we can apply our learnings for, for future programs, both as immune stimulating antibody conjugates um, and as, you know, myeloid agonist, as is the case with our uh, Dectin 2 program. In the case of the myelin antagonist, um, what is what are the type of tumors that you're targeting? Because her too, I think, I would say breast cancer probably, and I mean there's other tumors, but I think this is the big one probably. And what is the kind of what is your 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 scope in that sense? Yeah, so so with you know the her two targeted agent BDC ten oh one, you know breast and gastric cancers are the big ones. Um, but surprisingly, you know, there's high levels of HER2 on many other tumor types. And with the advent of, of some of the sequencing technology, um, those patients are now being able to, you know, take advantage of some of these HER2 targeted therapies. Um, so we're certainly very interested um, in those indications. Uh, in the, you know, the standpoint of, of the, you know, the Dactin 2 agonist, um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these tumors, be they hot or be they cold, they have high levels of myeloid cells in them, right? And certainly if you can activate the myeloid cells, uh, we think there's tremendous progress for then engaging uh, the adaptive immune response. So bridging this innate and adaptive immune response. And in the past, you know, people have really focused on depleting the myeloid cell. Let's just, you know, get rid of them um, and hope that, you know, the myeloid cells that infiltrate are not suppressive anymore. Um, whereas we're very much taking the opposite approach. We're trying to, you know, Ed used to say, we're trying to redeem them or, or revitalize them. Uh, again, convert them from these tumor suppressive cells to these, um, you know, immune cell fighters to the cancer fighters that we know they can be as we see them in the context of infectious disease. Can you go a little bit more into, because maybe I'm, I'm, yeah, on the mechanism. So it is, easier for me to see how TLR agonists would activate a myeloid set. How is it, uh, what is the difference between using that and, for example, Dectin-2? Yeah, so Dectin-2 would be uh, a direct um, agonist um, play. Um, and, and I can't go in, I'm not going to, I'm going to be more careful with my words um, as it relates to this based on, you know, the limited published information. Um, but that would be a direct agonist play, whereas, you know, with BDC uh, 1001 and some of these other HER2 target agonists, you're utilizing other pathways to get NF-kappa-B induced signaling, IL-12 secretion, TNF-alpha, and some of these other very pro-inflammatory cytokines and co-stimulatory molecules. All right. Okay, then I guess we'll have to wait for <laughs> more information to come from the public domain. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's very exciting. And I think the point that you make of instead of seeing myeloid cells as a kind of a hindrance to tumor uh, immunity, try to actually get them on your side uh, because, yeah, they're there and they're hard to get rid of. So you might as well uh, recruit them properly. Um, so I think it's trying to really model or influence them to micro or microenvironment is a lot of a lot of different approaches are trying to do this and it's extremely important and so when it comes to the to your kind of already published data and your preclinical models 
what are what is the main uh, difference that you see when you do this activation? What are the main markers or the main populations that you see coming up when you use, for example, your uh, ISAC, um, uh, uh, your ISAC, well, bald bodies? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question because, you know, really what we were doing, we were bridging the innate and adaptive uh, immune system in a very productive manner against cancer. So what happens, you know, 24 hours um, after Isaac treatment within the tumors, you see a massive infiltration of myeloid cells, right? These, you know, these phagos, these cells with all this phagocytic potential that can then, you know, chew the tumor up via phagocytosis and, and get ready for antigen presentation. And then, you know, seven or so days later, right? Uh, at least as we published in, in the Nature Cancer Manuscript, you now start to see a more increase of these myeloid cells. You start to see the T cells um, coming in, right? And then, you know, you really bridge this and, you know, the, the biology of the recruitment fits with what cytokines are released at which times. And again, this gets back to this PK-PD relationships. You get this massive release of chemokines and cytokines that prep the myeloid cells um, and then the T cells will come in and, and you know, start to mediate immunologic memory, um, not just against the HER2 antigen, right? And that's really part of the beauty of the approach, right? Once you get phagocytosis, again, you cut the, the tumor up in itty-bitty pieces and you present them on the peptide MHC such that you're exposing uh, the T cells to the, you know, the wealth of tumor neoantigens. Um, and then we, we get a very diverse um, T cell population that can mediate, you know, hopefully long-term uh, responses. And it certainly did in our preclinical models. Very exciting. I'm always, I always like when the T cells come to rescue that I really, that's what I was going to. I was like, are the T cells, you know, finding their way eventually? Jason says, no, stop talking about T cells. Brandon's <laughs> favorite immune cell is a T cell. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it is not just kidding. I, I appreciate all immune cells equally. So what I wanted to ask, and I know, so I'm going to try to phrase this in a way, based on what you can say from your, your IND package and everything else, does your approach with these immune-stimulating antibody conjugates help get rid of some of the concern for cytokine storm, cytokine release syndrome because of the internalization? Is that one of the, what you our guys are believing is a competitive advantage or have some preclinical data, whatever you can say? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a brilliant question because it gets back to the, you know, the meat of it. How do you deliver an immune agonist systemically, right? Um, so, so as I indicated, right, we chose TLR7 and 8 because it would require internalization. Um, but we also, you know, took great care to ensure that, you know, if the immune agonist did cleave, because we were using non-cleavable linkers to, to make sure it's on there, but even if it did cleave, um, it was going to be cell membrane impermeable. So again, to try to control some of the potential for, you know, off-target immune activation and cytokine release syndrome. Um, and certainly in our preclinical models, uh, we did a good job of, of minimizing that potential. And thus far, you know, in the clinic, uh, we've done a great job of, of minimizing that potential. And, you know, we, our Isaacs require what we call a three-factor authentication. And in the Nature Cancer paper, you kind of see us go through each step. You have to get tumor binding. Uh, first and foremost, to get any type of, you know, reasonable activation um, in vivo. Once you get that, you need the FC, right? Remember I said the FC is that giant eat me signals. If you ablate the FC and do an FC null ISAC, nothing happens to the tumor. So you need that phagocytosis. 
And then the same thing, if I inactivate the TLR agonist, with I think we call the TLR null in the paper, we call it deadbolt um, in our company, you don't see any of these responses. So it really is, you need tumor antigen engagement, FC-dependent effector functions in the TLR um, agonism, uh, which again, Jason, we took great care uh, preclinically to design around this because it, it matters to us greatly. And it, you know, it matters to our, our patients, right? Because a lot of these, you know, treatments that are out there have pretty severe side effects. Um, so it was important for us to, you know, hopefully extend, you know, their survival, but maintain as high a quality of life um, as possible. So important, good design, uh, and it's critical. And this kind of several layers of of control is is critical because once you, of course, once you inject that into the patient, uh, that's there's nothing you can do uh, anymore. So very, I think it's very very interesting, and I hope that you guys will 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 have a good first uh, clinical trial. So you you say you are now in phase one two, at the moment. So let's hope that the results are encouraging and, and they actually you can be can show that you provide a nice uh, therapeutic option for patients. And also, as I, I think what we mentioned with Jason is your, your career uh, tra um, story has been also very, very interesting. And I think for many of our listeners, a, a nice role model to, to see how you have uh, follow this 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 research uh, expertise and joined a company that does such nice things and now you have a a very you know a, a a top position within this company and I guess this brings us to uh, a question that we would like to ask you at the end of our conversations we'd like to uh, ask our, our guests something not so much maybe related to science but uh, in your case what we'd like to ask you if what uh, is the, piece, the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and it could be professional or not? Yeah, so, so I'll, I'm going to tie this back to, to Bolt again because this was during our Series A days. Uh, and, and Jason, it gets back to your question, you know, how, do you how do you design these things to make sure that they're, they're safe and you could administer them? Um, with our early constructs, uh, we administered them in our preclinical models um, and we found that we encountered extremely high levels of anti-drug antibody, right? Because again, what did we what did we actually do? Right? What's an Isaac? We tied an immune stimulant to an antibody. Um, so obviously, you know, if that antibody has immunogenicity, you run you know a real risk of amplifying um, that response. And you know that's what we found in our early preclinical days. And I remember uh, Richard Miller, who's you know the co-founder of Corvus with Pharmacyclics, you know huge in the development of, of rituximab and a brilliant mind. Um, he looked at us, it was, it was myself, it was Grant Yonahiro, who's our chief business officer. And he looks at us, he's like, look, that one's not going to hunt, go get a new one. And that piece of advice, really, we took it as, you know, embrace your challenges, right? Embrace bad data, because that what that was, that was devastating data to a company with Series A funding. Uh, and we took that challenge and the next several design cycles, we were laser focused on how to reduce the potential for immunogenicity versus just saying, hey, they're preclinical models, they're not predictive. We, we really took the, the bull by the horns and, and tried to design around that. Um, and I'm very proud to say uh, that in the clinic, we have encountered very low levels 
of immunogenicity and, you know, that advice of embracing the bad data and then finding a way to solve that problem uh, is just key to, to anybody in academia or in industry or in life in general, right? Like tackle the hard problems um, because our time here is limited. So, you know, get the work done. My boss actually uh, has given the advice that bad news early is good news mm -hmm. is, is both a way don't like hide problems but also under this concept i think that's a very good truism as you put it like embrace the problem and solve it don't put it off absolutely does that take some does take some courage though to to accept and then especially when you're feeling the pressure of making what you have has to work it has to work we're, we're so far but it has to work and then you realize that in the end everything will like you think you're so far, but actually most likely it's just the beginning. So you might as well, you might as well start over anyway. Yeah. And, and Brenda, honestly, that's why towards the beginning of this, I focused on, on the team, the team yeah. that you have around you have to be ready um, to tackle yeah. the tough problems and really be committed to developing good drugs to make yeah. sure that you don't run uh, from the problems or sweep them under the rudge that you, that you attack them uh, head on. So absolutely agree with you. It's good to have a good team to support you in those times. And then, well, eventually, hopefully you'll succeed and then you can go and have a drink and celebrate. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being here. Um, if we want to find you, I think your company Twitter is at Bolt Bio, right? So we can check you out there. And you're also on the internet and LinkedIn and everywhere else. I know you guys have a bunch of job openings, so they should check. People should check out your career page as well, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. We can't hire fast enough. Um, and, you know, it's a great place to work. Uh, we are scientifically voracious. Um, so if you share that spirit and that culture, uh, please do come and apply. There you go, listeners in the West Coast. Uh, you go and check out the open positions at Bolt. Good luck with your uh, ongoing studies and your, your research. And I will. We'll see what comes from that. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget, if you want to subscribe to our newsletter at immunologypodcast.com, you can get their show notes, also episode summaries, links to all the interview around the papers. And if you feel like reaching out to us, you can do that on Twitter at immunopodcast or send us an email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have any feedback or if you have a guest you would like to suggest. See you next time.